This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. Good morning, everybody. Welcome, teachers and teacher supporters. You're listening to Teachers Talk Radio. My name is Emma Williams, and thank you for joining me this morning or whenever you are catching up. Today, I'm going to be interviewing Vicky Bingham, who is a head teacher, and I'm going to be asking her, frankly, why? This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. Tune in live at ttradio.org, or to join in the conversation, download the Podbean app and search Teachers Talk Radio. Follow the hashtag TTRadio. Tune in, talk it out with Teachers Talk Radio. Well, thank you for joining me once again. And yeah, I mean, I, I, I jest. Vicky is an incredible person and as you will hear, absolutely loves her job. But to me, the incredible pressure of being a head teacher is frankly unimaginable. So I was really curious to ask her whether it was something she always wanted to do, whether the job was as she imagined it when she was younger uh, and how we can retain our best head teachers, because it's pretty clear that not everyone feels as positive about the role as Vicky still does. We are losing head teachers at quite an alarming rate, and there is a shortage across the profession, but particularly at that level. So it is something we need to think about, certainly looking out for and looking after our leaders. Well, as per usual, despite the fact that I'm no longer a full-time teacher, I am still obsessed with Edu Twitter, and I tell you what, if you're not regularly on there, if you're not a fan, I do highly recommend the stuff you get to find out is incredible. And the generosity of people and what they share is also quite remarkable. So Kate Jones, who uh, used to host on Teachers Talk Radio, and lots of you will have heard of her, she's um, an expert in retrieval practice. She's been sharing all sorts of stuff recently, uh, a free study guide for parents and pupils. So if you look for her on um, Twitter, you'll find what she's been sharing. All sorts of other great stuff in that field from um, Peps McRae as well. He this month has shared an incredible thread about the science of learning, and he shares a whole series of big ideas that every teacher should know. That's just there on Twitter up for grabs. Absolutely fantastic. This month and last month, I've also been following uh, the debate about grammar schools. Lots of people having a really interesting discussion. And it's something that is quite personal to me because I worked for several years in a state grammar school. And obviously, it was something that, that unions have always been very against. But do I necessarily listen to what unions say? Gen <laughs> increasingly, no. Um, but yet yeah, the arguments against them really are quite strikingly convincing. Um, so if you're interested in that, then obviously you can just search for the topic on Twitter. Uh, Sam Friedman has uh, all sorts of really interesting things to say about it. And um, someone called John Reese who is a fellow of the Chartered College, shared an article from The Spectator uh, called The Social Mobility Case Against Grammar Schools. And that was really, really interesting. Um, so it's something I'm still thinking about, but 
I'm afraid for those of us that, that have worked in them and seen some of their benefits before, the arguments do seem pretty damning. So my guest today, Vicky Bingham, is currently head teacher of South Hampstead High School, and she is almost an exact contemporary of mine. She is a classics teacher like me. Um, and in fact, I met her. Well, actually, we've never physically met. We've never met in person, but we've known each other and known of each other for quite a while. Uh, I say I met her or actually I actually rang her up. Um, she was deputy head at the time in another local school. And I rang her up to tell her how fantastic one of her trainee teachers was. Uh, this teacher had been placed with me in my state comprehensive school for her second placement. She was doing one of these routes that you can do nowadays of training on the job, which is fantastic, wasn't, wasn't available back in my day, certainly not in classics anyway. And uh, yeah, I contacted Vicky because I knew she was a classics teacher and also the deputy head. And I thought it would be good for this trainee to have that message passed to her. So we had a lovely chat about how wonderful this particular trainee is. And I know that she is still a teacher and still doing really well. And I'm still in touch with her too. So that's how I came across Vicky quite a few years ago now. So she started her career one year after me and trained in the same college. We both went to Cambridge to do our PGCE. I hope she enjoyed it more than I did. And so we could have been contemporaries. We literally missed each other by one year. And then she started at Guildford High School as a teacher of classics then moved to St Catharines in Bramley to become head of classics and then came back to Guildford High School uh, in her role as deputy head, which is the point at which I met her. And then since then, she has moved on to become the head of South Hampstead High School and has been there uh, since 2017. She is quite remarkably positive about the role and I think you will hear from our conversation that I think Vicky is in a very different place for me. We're all, as I say, almost exact contemporaries. So she's been teaching almost exactly the same amount of time as I have. But she sees herself as absolutely in the midpoint of her career and certainly still has that vision of going all the way through in full time teaching to her mid 60s. As you all know, I jumped off uh, the roundabout this year and uh, have stepped out of full-time teaching and Vicky is an absolute blast of fresh air because she's so incredibly positive about the job and I think you'll hear in the conversation how how different we are um, not that I'm negative about the job I had a fantastic career but um, she's a solutions focused person and when we get on to talking about classics um, our shared subject, which of course I couldn't resist exploring. It's really interesting how I'm at a point for various reasons that you'll hear in the interview, where I'm feeling a little bit depressed about the state of my subject in the state sector. And all Vicky wanted to talk about was solutions and how to put it right. And I think that pretty much sums up the difference between her and me and why she went all the way to head and I stayed a classroom teacher. But here is the absolutely fantastic Vicky. I'm sure you'll enjoy our conversation. 
Well, I, I really wanted to ask you about, first of all, your journey towards being a head teacher. I'm always fascinated whether somebody starts their teaching career thinking, I want to be a head teacher, which I certainly didn't. Uh, and what do you know? I didn't become one. Or, or did you just develop into it? Tell me. I mean, I think it's a really interesting question because I think you genuinely get a mix of people. Uh, and I don't know how it would sort of split if you did an analysis. I did want to be ahead from the time I started, but I really enjoyed my journey to headship and I, I'd like to go back to the classroom. Uh, if anyone will have me when I you know, retire from, from headship uh, at some, some day. But I did know um, that as I got closer to the sort of age and stage where I needed to be thinking about it, that was when it sort of became a reality. And I thought, oh, I don't know that I really do want to do this after all. But um, I've loved all the jobs I've done. I've absolutely loved them. But I think I've loved being ahead best of all. Um, I still teach. And there is that sort of tension sometimes between wanting to be with your subject, which was ultimately why I decided to go into teaching, because I, I wanted to end my career with knowledge I thought was worth having. Uh, and the irony is now that I probably spend more time thinking about things like inspection preparation <laughs> and all sorts of fascinating regulations than I do about classics. But I, I do really love the job. It's such a it's such a people job. It's so varied which I suppose suits a classicist in a way, doesn't it? Because the great joy of doing a classics degree is that it is such a broad and varied degree. I think it's a, a perfect degree for someone like me with a bit of a, a magpie brain. You can be interested in lots of different things. And I suppose headship is a sort of leadership equivalent of that. So yes, I did always want to be ahead, but I think lots of people discover that they want to be ahead much later on in their career. And I, I suspect that's probably more common actually. Well, it's great that you love it because I know the statistics are not good on on um, schools hanging on to their heads. Is the job what you envisaged when you you think back to your beginning of your career and you wanted to be ahead? Was your imagining of it accurate, or is it very different? Yeah, I mean, the typical turnover rate is heads leaving after five years. Really shocking uh, turnover rates, and schools need that sort of sustained you know, leadership particularly pupils you know, who really need stability in their lives and continuity of learning. I think when I was 23, to be honest, Emma, my ideas of what a head did were entirely nebulous. Um, <laughs> and it was just a sort of rather random idea. Uh, and it was only as I got into senior leadership and I worked very closely with a brilliant head that I realised what heads actually did. I think before then, I, I sort of knew they were busy, but I didn't really know what they did entirely. Is it what I expected compared with senior leadership? I think it's even more exhilarating because you sort of have to be confident in your own instincts, but you're not sort of trying to second guess what somebody else would want. You can really prioritise um, together with your team and your staff, you know, your, your vision for education. It's, it's really liberating, I find. That's lovely to hear. And I think the most successful heads do seem to be ones that that have that confident vision. They have to listen to their team, of course, but you do have to believe in what you're doing, don't you? A lot of the decisions that you make on a daily basis, a lot of them are quite grey decisions. There isn't a, a necessarily an obvious answer. And the reason they've the decisions have landed on your desk is because 
people aren't sure because it doesn't fit the sort of standard mould. And I think that's where it's really important to have sort of guiding principles of leadership. I mean, for example, you know, a really common scenario is whether you should absolutely stick rigidly to a school rule or a particular procedure or policy or whether you should tweak it to make an exception for a pupil who needs it. That's probably the most common dilemma. And I think it's quite difficult if you're not the head to make that call. But somehow when you're the head, those sorts of decisions become a lot easier because you sort of trust in your own, you trust in your own values, I guess. So I think that's really important is having a sort of guiding set of principles rather than a sort of rigid set of rules. But that, I suppose, relies on a team that actually are following the rules all of the time. The very fact that these things come up as dilemmas and get referred to you must mean that you've got a very cohesive staff. I'm very lucky. I've got I've got a brilliant, brilliant team of staff, uh, a fantastic leadership team. And I think that makes all the difference because I can delegate to them. We know each other well. And over the years, we've come to sort of second guess what we might think about a situation. And I think that's a really important skill for a deputy head to have is what would the head think about this? Uh, and, and that takes time and getting to know people. And that, again, I think that's why those human relationships, they're at the heart of education, not just between uh, staff in schools and the pupils, but also uh, amongst staff themselves. And I think that's why working in education is, is just the most joyful thing because it is all about it's all about people I've never once had a day at work where I've been bored in 21 years and a few insets uh, external insets that I haven't found very interesting <laughs> um, but uh, actually being in school I don't think I've ever had a boring day um, I think that's very true of teaching in general isn't it the whole range of jobs within education from entry-level teacher to right up to head you might have other feelings about your day, but I think boredom certainly <laughs> isn't yeah. one I've ever experienced. Challenge. Yes, um, frustration uh, sometimes. Frustration. Um, and I, I suppose the, the challenging thing about leadership and, you know, people go on and on, and perhaps this is maybe even more true in the independent sector, where you know you have essentially you have to persuade parents that they want to send their children to your school for a not inconsiderable fee when you start as a head you get a lot of talk about you know what is your unique selling point and the thing is my conclusion on this is that it's not like selling nails or hair dryers or uh, or cars educating human beings particularly young people is it's a very complex business and I think what makes leading a school challenging, but also exciting, is you are dealing with so many different facets to their lives. And I think more and more now, I mean, when we cast our minds back and you know, 20 years ago, 25 years ago in education, teachers' jobs then were, were very much centred on just being the classroom teacher. And then over the last 20 years, you know, there's been you know, continued emphasis on their role as pastoral carers continued emphasis on their role to sort of prepare young people for the workplace and it really I think there's been a real shift towards not just educating the brain but also educating the person 
And to do that, you've got to be thinking about all sorts of different things. You can't just say there's one thing you do. You've got to do lots of different things really well if you're going to do that job of educating the whole person properly. So you, of course, work in an all-girls school and quite a, a, an academically competitive one. So what are your feelings on girls' resilience and, and how we can support them with that? Because obviously that's something we're talking about a lot, especially since the pandemic. Absolutely. And, um, you know, when you look at the, the statistics for young people's mental health, I mean, we've got... As a, as a country, we've got some of the worst rates of mental health in, in young people compared with other countries in the developed world. And of course, a lot of people immediately say, well, that's the pressure, isn't it? It's the pressure we put them under. Yes, and I don't, I don't necessarily agree that that's the, the, the root cause. Um, I think it's, it's, it's complex. And I suppose the rates of mental ill health have gone up slightly more significantly in, in girls aged between about 17 and 19. So actually that, that period when they first left school can be a very vulnerable period. And I do think there's more that schools can be doing, uh, particularly in schools like, schools like mine, where they will all leave for university in preparing them, not just about how to get into university, but preparing them for, um, it's sort of shedding some light on what that experience is going to be like. I don't think anybody tells you, for example, that your first term as a fresher can be incredibly lonely. Mm. Uh, and that can be a really vulnerable time for young people. So I think schools could be thinking about that more. Um, in terms of the pressure, I mean, yes, there are a lot, there's lots of discussion, isn't there, about the examination system that um, our GCSE students in particular have to go through. And I was, I was really struck by it this summer when I compared the number of papers sat by my A-level candidates versus the number of papers sat by my GCSE candidates. And um, it, it became almost a little bit of a competition to find the girl in the school one week who had the greatest number of GCSE exams to sit. And I think we found two students who had eight exams in one week. Whereas you know, the A-level students, there was sort of more riding on a smaller number of papers. So I do think there is a discussion to be had about the number of examinations that GCSE students take, because the exams are there. I, I do think they're necessary because they're a fair and objective way of assessing people. But I question the sheer number. And we know that you know, sort of high levels of stress can trigger, in some cases, depression. But I think I'd temper that comment with I suppose a comment that I think sometimes we're in danger of wanting to sort of remove too many challenges from young people. And I, I don't think that's a good thing for them either. I think challenge, the right level of challenge, it's all about keeping it in balance. I and mean, we've all seen those sort of graphs, haven't we, of the kind of optimum level of stress. And it's about, it's about getting that balance right. Because if we remove all the challenge, then they're not going to learn that stamina, that resilience, they're not going to learn how to fail. I mean, I suppose the way I'd sort of approach this at school is a sort of healthy balance between assessing them enough so that they've got enough opportunities to learn from failure, but not making it so often that they feel that they're just on a sort of examination tread, um, treadmill. And I think what's also really important in the GCSEs in particular is 
I think you've got to have a bit of a quiet strategy for preparing them for the examination. Of course, you need to give them exam prep. You need to teach them the assessment objectives. But I, I sometimes think we as a profession could talk less about the actual, you know, what the examiner is looking for. And I know that's difficult when you've got, um, you know, students who, who really need that very, very focused examination technique. But I, I do think that's a little bit of a sort of depressing feature of Key Stage 4, that Key Stage 3 is, is joyous and exciting. And then suddenly there's this very exam focused funnel at GCSE. And I think, you know, what I will actively talk to the staff about is about the quiet strategy that you prepare them for GCSE, you give them enough practice papers, you teach them the skills, but we, we, you, know, you don't start your first year 10 lessons, for example, with just outlining what the syllabus includes, because I don't think that's a very inspiring start. You've got to tell them at some point, you've got to enjoy learning. I think that's really important. It's a really good point. And I know I've been guilty of this myself, that you do especially I think that actually ironically the more experienced you become because of course you do get to know your your specifications so well and you read all the examiner's reports you come you become an actual expert in the examination process yeah. beyond just your subject and it can be very tempting and I've certainly given into it to educate your students about all of that you know the examiner likes to do this he likes to ask yeah. that but yeah. you're right it, it's it's not exactly thrilling, is it? I think we sometimes are guilty of thinking that that's what our students want. But mm. I've noticed when I sort of talk to them about exam technique in a classroom, it's probably the quickest way to make their eyes glaze over. <laughs> so I think you have this sort of instinct as a teacher that you will seem effective and organised if you do lots of chat about what the examiner is looking for. But why not say, in Latin, for example, why, why don't we just say, well, that's what our subject demands. It demands a certain level of precision uh, or in biology where you have to be really precise about the technical terms you use. If we say you only have to do that because that's what Mr. or Mrs. Examiner is looking for, mm. then I don't think that's as powerful a message as saying, well, actually, biology is a very precise discipline and you have to be rigorous and you have to use the right language. So it's teaching them the same skills, but spinning it in a yeah. more inspiring yes. way. I think so, yes. Um, I like I, it. It would help if we didn't have as many examinations and if we thought more creatively about the GCSE um, process and, and didn't just, uh, I mean, obviously there is a, a mixed economy, some subjects have got coursework, but I think, I think there's definitely a missed opportunity for talking about reform. You know, the Times Education Commission was published uh, just in the summer term and I really hope that you know, it's the third in I think this millennium of um, uh, you know, some big education commissions with some very sort of big conclusions about where British education should be going, and I really hope that at some point we have stability in the Department for Education and some really good thinking about what the future might hold. Particularly, I think at, at sixth form level, where I I really think that the syllabus that we're offering our students is too narrow. Uh, and we really mm -hmm. should be thinking about the greater breadth. It's really interesting, I think, also what you said, you mentioned failure and the importance of learning to fail as part of our strategy for preparing them for life. And I, I passionately believe that. I, I'm very lucky I failed at all sorts of things because um, I have 
fairly distinct talents in, in certain areas and, and not so much in others. So I got quite used to it. But uh, people I know of, my husband, for example, who was a bit of an all-rounder, had things he was much more passionate about, but could do everything. And I think when he first failed, which wasn't until his, probably his late teens, it was a big shock and very difficult for him to cope with. And I've previously interviewed Paul Penn, who's a he's a psychology lecturer and specialises in helping students with, he doesn't like the term study skills because he <laughs> thinks it's been so tarred, but um, one of the things he raises about the shift into higher education is that failure is crucial to the learning process. And I think he and I agreed that in schools we're so afraid of them failing and that's not our fault that's been imposed on us really but in fact we 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 then will do anything to stop them failing even spoon feeding them to an extent that is not going to help them learn in the long run they need to be failing about 50 percent of the time in the classroom for true learning to happen and you know sometimes our our perception of what good teaching looks like is flawed if you think about uh, you know, a lot of studies done through extensive lesson observation into how much time teachers will spend assessing students on what they actually already know. Hmm. And it, it might look good because the students can answer the questions, but you're not actually deepening or extending their knowledge. And I think we as teachers, we need to be more comfortable with our students being uncomfortable because learning is uncomfortable at times and I think getting students used to that particularly as they make the transition between year six and seven I don't know how else one would do this I mean I know in some parts of the country there are middle schools but I do think that shift between year six and seven is, is quite a seismic shift for the children mm. and I mean certainly what I notice in the sort of in in year seven is that students suddenly become quite worried about things they didn't ever used to be worried about in primary school mm. such as um you know sort of where they where they put the date and can they turn the page um and you'll often find sort of secondary school teachers laughing about this because it's quite endearing in a way and primary school teachers saying well it wasn't us that taught them all these things um so i think getting teaching them how to fail from the very beginning uh is is really important and, um, and helping them to understand that learning is a process of sort of incremental improvement. And that comes, I think, through really detailed feedback to students. So I think all the work that's been done in, in recent years and all the research on what works in assessment is, is really important. You know, it's no use saying you need to evaluate more. Mm. What on earth does that mean to us? How do you need to model it? Doesn't mean much to me, to be honest. It wouldn't mean much to me unless somebody... <laughs> me how to do it so and I think it's sort of if you help them through that sort of stage process then I think that is a way of helping them to learn to fail. Let's talk a bit more about how you deal with supporting students with their mental health at, at your school yeah. um because obviously again being quite a high pressure environment do you find that certain students find it difficult because of their desire to succeed? I think it is it is can be challenging for for young people and uh, um and i think uh i think being in an environment where you're surrounded by similarly able peers i think the benefit of that is that it can be really inspiring 
they they can spur each other on in a really positive way. So I think it can be really powerful, but for a small number of students, you know, they can feel that they're not as able as the rest and compare themselves unfavorably. And I don't think we should be surprised about that. It's a natural human instinct and it's no good us saying, oh, don't compare yourself with other people because human beings do. Um, of course, just, of course, just yes. And, and there's no point as well saying to them, oh, don't forget you're in a very competitive environment. The rest, if you compare yeah. yourself to the rest of the country, no, their peers are their peers and that's, that's, that's how they're gonna feel. I think it comes down to providing a broad holistic education, which isn't just about academic subjects, but also about the creative and the performing arts. So we've got real emphasis on that as well as traditional academic subjects at, uh, at South Hampstead. For us, it's about having a really full co-curricular programme as well. For us, it's about providing with lots of opportunities so they can find something which they feel is theirs. And that can have a sort of catalytic effect on um, their confidence levels in their other subjects as well. So I think that's important. I think it's also about what you reward as a school. So when we have, uh, you know, when we give awards, it's not just for academic success. It's for contribution to the school life. In fact, the most prestigious kind of award in the school is a contribution to school life prize. It's actually not an academic prize. And that's something that I want to do more work on still is, is what, we, what we reward, what, what teachers praise pupils for as well. You know, that really specific praise, um, not just well done, you've got, you know, all nines in your GCSEs, but well done, you've shown such resilience uh, over the last few months, it's it's been really powerful in our specific praise, because then for them it, it's what I celebrate in assembly and what I talk about in assembly, uh, and what teachers talk about in their, their tutor groups. So I think all those little things can have a really, they can, they can make the difference between having an academic culture which is exciting and stimulating versus toxic because it's competitive. I think That's it's really, really, really watching what you communicate, what you demonstrate is important and about your school culture. Do you think that's one of the, the joys and privileges of being head of an independent school that you can make more decisions about breadth that state schools would struggle with? Uh, I mean, when I look at Ofsted and um, uh, the way in which it dominates a lot of the agenda, uh, I'm very glad that that's not something that, I mean, we've got a very rigorous inspection system, which is controlled by the Department for Education, ultimately. Do I feel, um, I mean, I suppose I'm lucky. I've got, I've got the resources. Our, our teachers won't be teaching quite as much on their timetable, and so they've got more time to run extracurricular clubs. So I suppose staff resourcing is probably the biggest difference that, uh, yeah. you know, I've got the ability to sort of put somebody in charge of, you know, looking after a sort of scholarship program or the opportunity to ask someone to run a whole debating program. It's the sort of the extras uh, that I'm able to do because the teachers are not, uh, they're working incredibly hard, but their timetables will probably not be at quite the same percentage level. And I suppose that does give me more freedom. Yeah. Mm. And one of the big differences I feel is the way the school day is structured. So most state schools will have really very short 
yes. periods at lunchtime, for example, in our school, it was half an hour. Um, yeah. That really isn't time to, to do no. anything for the students or the staff. No, that's right. Um, and I know I know lots of schools have short lunch breaks because um, the challenges of behaviour, but we, we have, we're very lucky, we have an hour and 15 minutes, and it means girls can, in theory, they could do two clubs if they wanted. And uh, the school day doesn't end till four o'clock. There'll be clubs going on till 5.30. So I suppose it's it's part of the culture. So I do feel freer in that respect that we can we can innovate in that way. But we the clubs don't cost us huge amounts to run. It's, I suppose it's, it's teacher time. Yeah. And of course, that's the biggest cost for, for an average school budget, isn't it? That's, that's where yeah. the money goes. Yeah. Yes. And some of that money, of course, goes towards the work that we do with uh, state partner schools. So teachers are uh, going out on their timetables to go and teach French, to go and teach Latin in primary schools, to run the big sort of debate hub involving lots of competitions for local schools and coaching and debating. So some of that, that resource is, is, is being used for that. And it benefits our teachers as well for mm. their own professional development. It's hugely valuable. Well, it's lovely to hear that you're spreading Latin into the yes, state sector. Yeah. I have to say, I'm, I'm, feeling, I'm feeling quite dismal about it at the moment, Vicky, I have to say. I think it was how hard it was to replace me, which yeah. I think I always knew it would be. Well, I, I did, I always knew it would be, but somehow the actual grim reality of it really depressed me. I mean, that that job advert, as you, I pestered you with it, um, it was retweeted by Mary Beard. I mean, if that would have been in front of every single classicist's eyes without question. And second round, first round, we didn't appoint. Um, we did have a couple of ECT uh, applicants. And the one we offered it to decided he didn't want it. And he decided he cited the fact that it was being on his own and there was no sixth form. Well, that's the state comprehensive sector in Surrey. Did you manage to, you did manage to appoint. And then second round, we did very fortunately have one solid applicant who turned out to be serious and wanted it and, and we appointed. And okay, you only need one, but well, it, was a, it was a narrow squeak. And if, if, it, if it hadn't been for him going, oh yeah, I quite fancy that. He's, 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 he's quite a, he's a fascinating chap I hope to get to know him better but he's one of those people I think that occasionally likes to hit the reset button in life and he just said oh I was too com comfortable where I was and I think the head at his previous school couldn't believe it because he's he's a little bit older than me uh, sort of early 50s and I think the head thought oh he'll just see out his days here what what does he want to go and go to a new school for but he just fancied a change so we were so lucky but when he goes but do you know, Emma, we, I mean, recruitment, um, I mean, recruitment is, is, I think it's the biggest challenge that we've got to solve um, as a country. Um, and, um, you know, we have to run certain adverts three times. Yes. Yeah. And that's uh, for a school like and, South Hampstead. That's um, Yes. And, you know, I suppose I am absolutely dogged in this respect. I will never appoint unless I'm I'm happy, but it's a real challenge. I mean, you know, the finding teachers in, and then there are so many shortage subjects across the country: computing, uh, mm -hmm. maths, the sciences, languages, geography, and economics. Both subjects which are becoming hugely popular at university. So that's going to become more challenging. Classics. 
I don't know exactly what the solution is, but mm. I think the I think we've got to restore more trust in the teaching profession. I think we we work, Emma, don't we, in one of the most highly accountable teaching systems in the world. And it's most denigrated, I think. Yeah. I think that the way teaching is talked about and the way teachers are talked about yeah. really well, doesn't help. Well, the way teachers were talked about during the pandemic was was awful. Um, you know, that they were sort of on holiday and um, that's not how I remember it. <laughs> doing anything. I think we worked harder than we'd ever worked before. I think I think we really need to raise a professional standing of, of, of teaching. Um, and I think that comes through placing more trust and, uh, in our teachers. And I think we also need to be thinking about, I mean, do our teachers need to be training for longer? I mean, we only, they only train for a year. I mean, I, one of the good changes very recently is the, um, the NQT framework moving to a two-year early career mm -hmm. teacher programme. And I think that's really beneficial. I found, certainly found my second year as a teacher was the, the busiest, really, really busy. And I think that's a good thing. Mm. Um, I think the other thing that we need to, we don't think about as much as a profession is sort of centralised planning, although I think that has changed a lot in the last 10 years, I think actually particularly um, in the state sector, um, mm. I think there's a much greater emphasis on that, but that, that saves teachers so much time, doesn't it? It does, and yet so many people are so resistant to it, which is fascinating. But that's in Singapore, you know, the teachers don't, they don't teach nearly as heavy a timetable but they teach bigger classes, but they plan all their lessons together. Mm. Um, and so they've got much more time to refine those lessons. But yeah, you're right. There is still that sense in Britain, isn't there? If you're kind of king or queen in your classroom. Yeah. And, and early career teachers need to write all their own resources. Yeah, ridi That's ridiculous. ridiculous. Absolutely yeah. ridiculous. It's an efficient yeah. way of working. No, it really, really isn't. But I think certainly in a subject like classics it, it it can be very depressing so there's there's so much talk in in the world of classics about you know supporting the state sector and there's i mean there's money to be had there's organizations that that put money into it but then when you i think wise head teachers in big inner city schools won't put latin on the curriculum when you ask them why they say because of the problems of recruiting. So they might, even if they, they might recruit somebody, but they're very conscious, well, what, what about when that person moves on? I probably won't be able to replace them. And, and they're aware of this and they're, they're afraid to do it for that reason. And I don't blame them. And what do you think the solution is? I mean, the Cambridge Latin course online materials, they were designed for modern linguists to be able to, to teach Latin. Well, that that seems to be and that's where a lot of the money seems to be going isn't it that it's about training up non-specialists to be able to teach latin the timetable release to get them properly trained mm. expensive isn't it it's not it's easier said than yeah. done I, I, I don't know i'm, I'm just I'm, I'm not in solution mode at the moment i'm in dismal mode <laughs> but because uh, I, I feel dismal about that as well because i think well that's fine for, for getting year seven and eight excited about Latin, but a non-specialist teaching it is that's not going to take somebody all the way to to A level. That's 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 just not going to happen. No. You need a you need a specialist. It's insulting to any subject to suggest it can be taught to that level by a non-specialist. It can't. I mean, there are only three places that offer 
teacher training. And what I, you know, what I hear from you know one of the teacher training places for classics, they are oversubscribed. You know, oh, they get massively. more applicants wanting to train as classics teachers, but because their numbers are capped, they have to turn them away. Oh, absolutely. I've helped with the interviews at King's uh, several times and uh, it can be very tough. The demand is high, it seems. Um, and yet I, I do, if I'm totally honest, I do feel a little dismal about the trainees themselves when and, and those that go into it when who will claim they're very keen to work in the state sector. And where are they all when when my job is advertised? It does make you wonder. Very many of them to go around, are there? Um, and I, I think, um, yeah, I think maybe is there more that universities could be doing to sort of encourage students to think about classics? I mean, a lot of classicists sort of go into the corporate world, don't they? Mm. Um, and actually, is there more that that independent schools, where we've got you know a lot of the a lot of the class the A level candidates will become independent schools? Is there more we could be doing to be promoting teaching? as a career in some of these shortage subjects, because our students are you know, disproportionately represented in subjects like classics. And uh, wouldn't it be great if, if more of them became classics teachers? Mm. Um, so perhaps that's something for me, to, for me to think about. I'm always trying to spot students, alum, uh, you know, girls who are leaving. Uh, a couple of them I'll say, if you ever want to become a teacher, let me know. Uh, <laughs> and we have had we've had alumni coming back to teach, and we've had we've had a few girls going into the teaching profession. But that's something I'm going to take away and think about because a lot <laughs> of the A level candidates are in the private sector, and more of them need to become teachers. I think maybe moving more towards partnerships and, and outreach is the way forward. Because I think again, in reality, I mean, this this candidate who eventually turned down the job, he cited being on his own, and it is daunting, and I do understand that. Actually, I loved it because I'm I just meant it meant I could do whatever I wanted and I didn't have to. I could just wake up and say, I'm going to switch that round in year nine. And I didn't have to discuss it with anybody because it was it only affected me. But it is daunting. And I think if also I'm very lucky that I just love teaching Latin and I was never particularly bothered about the rest of it. Um, whereas most classicists, like you said at the beginning of the interview, are very lots of interested in lots of things. They want to teach their Greek, they want to teach class, so they want to teach ancient history. Now, state school is never going to be able to offer that. Um, and so if you want to be part of a, of a classics department, which most people do, yeah. you have to go independent. So should we be thinking about partnerships between states? Because that is why I ended up in the independent sector. Um, because I want, I loved Greek. I did more Greek papers than Latin. I really wanted to be sort of in a department with with several other people. Yeah, that's what I suspect. So it just becomes a self fulfilling yeah, that's cycle. Right. That's, that's the problem, right. and it's not that people aren't keen to work in the state, but when they actually look at the reality, yeah. they. Um, but what much. should we? What we'd be thinking about is shared, you know, sort of these partnerships where teachers are able to to work some of their time teaching Latin in the state in a state school, and then the rest of their time they can be teaching Latin, Greek, uh, hopefully teaching Greek in the state sector as well. Um, but sort of sharing sharing teachers across schools in more than a just sort of once a week to go and teach a, a Latin class, but actually teachers and having arrangements like that but at the moment mm -hmm. if you want to be a teacher across two different schools you, you have to organize that yourself really don't you yeah I haven't really seen that you know 
there an opportunity for schools to be thinking about joint recruitment drives state in classics state and independent sort of and, and you share you they're shared across two different schools have you thought what you're going to do when you get the first request to come back to the classroom coming <laughs> that's going to happen isn't it that's definitely going to happen well, i think my big fear is that yeah chris will hate it and leave within the year and then you'll get a phone call and then i'll be they'll be like oh yeah i think yeah. that's that that'll be hard hopefully not hopefully he'll be fine he's got a good if you look at his cv he's got a really good track record of he doesn't flit you know it's so. a great it's an amazing legacy that you've left at the school so i really hope yeah hope, really hope it continues I, I, me too i would i would be devastated i mean i'm still haven't recovered from you know i was i was at the latimer school previously and Oh, in Edmonton. In Edmonton, yeah, yeah. You're, yeah, yeah, you're, yeah. Your neck of the woods. Yeah, we do um, play football. Um, and they, they've ditched Latin A-level, and I'm, I'm fuming, because when I left in 2008, I left a year 12 group of 26. Beat that. And that was probably because they couldn't find a teacher. No, it's because no. they whittled down the numbers. Uh, yeah, so I'm really fuming about that feel it was my legacy um so yeah I'd be really devastated if uh, if it had to go at Woking but again I mean what can you do you either teach yourself until you're 85 or <laughs> yes I think which I'm not planning to do a new chapter oh well good luck with yeah, it all and thank, um, you. thank you so much for listening to my well asking me interesting questions and listening to my rambling it's been an honour. I know it's got 12,000 followers on Teachers Talk Radio. Let's have a look. My yes. daughter was asking how many people would listen. So I said, oh, well, it's got 12,000 followers. <laughs> <laughs> she said that wasn't very impressive. <laughs> no, <laughs> not, no, not, not like compared to an Instagram no, influencer. <laughs> I'll stay well clear of TikTok. Thank <laughs> <laughs> for now. <laughs> Wale. Bye. Isn't she wonderful? And I think you can see what I mean about the sort of person that becomes a head and how solutions focused they are. And it's always struck me, I think this has been true of every single head that I have worked for. And I've worked for some fantastic heads at my current school. Um, and they have always had that common thread of um, being solutions focused. And I think that is the difference between someone who makes it all the way to the top of leadership uh, and someone who just hangs out in the classroom like me. Hi, I'm Charlie Burley, the Teacher's Health Coach, and I want to talk to you about the first ever health and wellbeing event for educators, Rewriting Wellbeing. It's a full day dedicated to improving your health as a teacher through looking at your nutrition, movement, mindset, workload and wellbeing in school. You'll hear from our incredible lineup of speakers, including Andrew Cowley, Jen Foster, Kimberly Wilson, Simon Bolger and many more. There'll be talks, workshops and time to network with like-minded colleagues. We'll look after you all day with brunch, lunch and all the refreshments. You'll get to meet our incredible speakers and our amazing team of ambassadors from the education space. It's a non-profit event with all proceeds going to the amazing education charity EdSupport. This isn't one to miss. I look forward to seeing you there on the 22nd of October at Etc Venues St Paul's in London. You can search Rewriting Wellbeing on the Eventbrite website to find out more. This episode of Teachers Talk Radio has been made possible with support from Witherslack Group, the UK's leading provider of SEN education and care. They're here to support you too through an ever-growing offer of free resources, including webinars, podcasts, articles and events, 
aimed at supporting teaching professionals like you. Visit their website at www.wetherslackgroup.co.uk to find out more. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and this is Teachers Talk Radio News. ITV News reports on the three dads walking as the men continue their 600-mile walk across the UK and Northern Ireland. Andy Airy from Cumbria, Mike Palmer from Greater Manchester and Tim Owen from Norfolk came together after their daughters took their own lives. This challenge is their second walking challenge and their key aim is to get suicide prevention on the national curriculum. Mike Palmer believes that many young people aren't really equipped with the life skills to keep them safe in later life. Their 300 mile challenge last year saw them raise almost a million pounds for suicide prevention charity Papyrus, but this time they're walking to all four UK parliaments to secure support for changes to school curriculums. Former Labour leader Jeremy Corbyn has attended an event in Manchester which focused on some of the hardships faced by students in higher education. He spoke at the Right to Clothing campaign launch at University of Manchester and urged the government not to forget students in the cost of living crisis. The campaign itself aims to raise awareness of clothing deprivation and provide clothing directly to those in need. Dr Luke Graham, a University of Manchester academic, said, Whilst other deprivations are highly publicised and visible in the UK public consciousness, the same is not true of clothing deprivation. Further details of the campaign can be found on the Right to Clothing campaign website. Between the 20th of September and the 2nd of October, many schools will recognise British Food Fortnight with a series of events. Warwickshire County Council published details of events on offer in its schools, including chances for parents and families to learn more about where food comes from, as well as enjoying Britain's best seasonal and locally sourced products. The project aims to get children excited about food produced regionally and nationally. The event has been organised by Love British Food and has been going for 20 years. This year, the event also hopes to raise awareness of the benefits of short supply chains in reducing environmental impact as well as cost. The TES magazine features an article on Gaelic education in Scotland. With many families now wanting their children to learn in Gaelic, the article explores whether enough has been done to harness that enthusiasm. Half of Scottish councils offer primary Gaelic medium education, almost 40 years after the first primary unit was established in 1985. Figures also show that over 3,500 primary pupils are taught through the medium of Gaelic and that many others are drawn to the language. Data from Duolingo, a language learning app, suggests that by February 2022, over a million people had accessed the Gaelic course. The full article is available in the TES magazine. Finally, the former governor of the Central Bank of Nigeria, Lamido Sanusi, has made a passionate call for scaling up girls' education in sub-Saharan Africa. He spoke at a three-day Transforming Education Summit. He pointed out that providing girls with education and the opportunity to earn income was a single silver bullet to improve socio-economic issues and make progress towards breaking the cycle of illiteracy and poverty. He stated his regret that there is currently a deficit of 69 million teachers globally and added that many of those at work in Sub-Saharan Africa, South Africa and Southern Asia lack basic qualifications and training. Sanusi believes teachers are a powerful force, 
but they could not deliver quality education without training. He launched a project in 2020 with the aim of supporting ordinary teachers in developing their skills, according to a report on the This Day website. This has been your Teachers Talk Radio News with Joe Fox. This is Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods, your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. Hello, this week I was asked in a tweet, why does switching off and on again work? The answer is actually incredibly simple. Kind of. Every program running on your computer or device needs to load into main memory, what we know as RAM, in order to be fetched, decoded and executed by the processor. Now before you fall asleep, what that means is as you open and run multiple applications, more and more data is having to be processed. Different programs running will have different priorities, meaning some are more important than others. Things like typing on the keyboard, for example, will stop anything else and be processed first because you, the user, will expect to see a character appear on the screen. And if you don't, well, you'll press the key again and then press it again harder and suddenly get a splurge of gibberish on your screen that you'll then have to deal with. Sometimes programs don't behave, like the person in rush hour who indicates right at a roundabout then slingshots for a left turn. They get ahead of the queue, but at the cost of the other drivers waiting properly. What I'm trying to say is lots of apps are running and there's lots of queues waiting to be processed. So switching off and on again is like resetting everything, clearing the memory and allowing the programs you need to run more efficiently. Now my question to you is, do you leave your laptop on? so it's ready in the morning. Is it running slower than others? Why not try a power cycle? You know, switch it off and on again. TT Radio 2022. Follow us and tell us what you want to know about tech. I'm Steve Woods and that was Two Minute Tech. Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods. Your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. Now, ironically, my career now relies 100% on technology because I am an online tutor and so the technology is absolutely crucial but I kid you not the level of stress that that entails compared to what it's like in teaching doesn't even come close and I was reflecting on why and of course it's that on-show thing and of course the fact that in teaching you are hopefully in control although I say that with scare quotes around it in control of 30 excitable youngsters and it's that the stress of things not working when you're trying to make sure that the ship runs smoothly uh, I, I still have still brings me out in a cold sweat I think the last experience I had in my final term I was doing a cover lesson actually for a fantastic teacher that I was mentoring although frankly I was learning from her most of the time she was so outstanding Uh, she was out of school for the day and I got one of her covers the lesson of course because she's so brilliant uh, was was all there but it did rely on being projected there were all the instructions there for the students and uh, couldn't get the projector working so you know I messaged the IT team the those of the have you tried switching it off and on again um made it clear that I kind of needed them. No response, no response. We sort of muddled through. Lovely class, so I have to say it, it was fine. But I was I was reading stuff to the students and given that it was a French lesson. I haven't studied French since I was 16. That was interesting. And 
we were muddling through, but again, eventually I sent a message to the IT guys going, guys, I, I, I really am struggling. I really could do with you here now. And then immediately they turned up. They literally laid one hand on the projector. I swear they didn't touch anything and on it came. And I just went, what are you kidding me? What did I not do? And it turns out that the projector obviously has a shutter that goes across the um, lens. Now I knew that and I'd already checked it was open. I'm not that stupid, but apparently if the shutter is just half a millimeter in the wrong place, that sends a message to the machine that it's off. Uh, so yeah, he literally had barely breathed on it and it came on. So then you feel like an idiot as well as having gone through the stress. Yeah. The class thought it was hilarious, obviously. Well, many thanks for joining me once again on Teachers Talk Radio. I haven't quite sorted out what I'm doing next fortnight. Did have something lined up, but uh, the guest has had to postpone. So I will hold on to that uh, in case she can't join me. But I'm really hoping that one pans out because she's a fantastic guest. Hopefully once I can actually pin her down to a date. But I will be here either way and uh, hope that you will join me. In the meantime, have a lovely week and I will see you again on Teachers Talk Radio in a couple of weeks' time. Take care. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio.